0: Hello, everyone. I hope you're doing well today on Tuesday, February 9th, as this is Rafael Garcia here with chuan Humes for episode 194 of the MMA Ratings podcast. Siwon, uh, how are you doing today, man?
1: Uh, not too bad. I was uh, just off the treadmill. I was walking on the treadmill for about an hour. so.
0: whoa, 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 whoa. You on the treadmill? What's going on, sir?
1: Uh, I just, uh, I usually, since I've been over in, uh, since we moved, I've used, been using the treadmill, stair machine, uh, the, uh, elliptical, just different kind of stuff, kind of give my knees a rest, because I'm either, I used to jog a lot, now I'm always on basketball courts for hours at a time with kids, so, try something a little different.
0: Tell the truth, Swan, you're trying to become one of these, um, Instagram fitness influencers?
1: <laughs> I wish. They we're seem like see they're pretty um, good life.
0: We're going to see you hawking some, some Fit Tummy tea. Next month or something like that? Is that what's going down? You can I, tell the truth.
1: If I can get endorsements, I will gladly sign off of whoever will sign me to a contract.
0: All right, everybody. So that is our new uh, goal. We're going to get Schwann and fitness, influencer, um, sponsorship of some sort. Let's see if we can get this man up there with some of these uh, IG models that we see every week. But before we do that, we got some MMA to talk about. We have UFC... Vegas 18, to look back to UFC 258 preview. And also, we're, we're going to talk a little bit about other um, combat sports, pays Van Zandt, some other stuff as well, to Chuan. But before we do that, as always, we got to thank everybody who takes the time to check out this show. Uh, I appreciate everyone who has followed our podcast over at YouTube and also check us out across multiple streaming platforms. You can hit us up on Apple Podcast, Breaker, Google Podcasts, Radio Publics, and Spotify, along with Anchor and YouTube as well. Each one of those spots, you can find us at MMA Ratings. You can hit us up on Instagram and Twitter at MMARatings.net. In both spaces, my name is Garcia underscore sports on both social media platforms, and Shawan can be found at Black Jordan Breen. So we're going to start off with the fallout from UFC Vegas 18, where we had two- Big stoppages in the main and co-main event. Starting with the heavyweights first, where Alexander Volkov finished off Alexander, excuse me, Alistair Overeem, I think in the second round. Was it the first? Was Was it right at the first? I'm not sure. I don't remember. But it was a stoppage, and it didn't go anywhere as planned for Overeem, who was looking to make one final run at the title. Let's talk about Volkov first, though, because this was a pretty... Clear-cut and dominant win in his favor. He didn't look hurt or even phased at anything that was thrown his way throughout this fight. Schwan, where do you see Volkov as a heavyweight contender? Uh,
1: well, I mean, this is a big this is a big win for him just based off a of name alone. So I would think that he's probably probably pushed up a little bit further ahead than most people. I would I would figure he's on the cusp of a title challenge himself um, after this win. It was so one-sided, and then you can. Combine that with the win over Walt Harris, uh, the the win over Greg Hardy, you know that had a lot of that had a lot of coverage, but didn't really have a lot of meaning because Greg Hardy's not a top top level uh heavyweight. The only thing holding him back really is a loss to Derek Lewis. Outside of that, you know the loss to Derek Lewis, lost the Curtis Blades, but that Curtis Blades loss didn't really give anybody any idea that Curtis Blades would be a potential challenger. In fact, it might have hurt Curtis Bra- Cur- Curtis Blades' reputation more in winning the fight than it did in Volkov and losing it. So I would figure he's gotta be in the what? Top four, top five potential somebody falls out, somebody gets hurt, he could step in very easily, uh, due to the nature of his 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 current win st- his current win streak and the uh guys he knocked off on the way to his current win streak and he did it he did both of them fairly impressively.
0: So let's look at the heavyweight rankings because I wonder that uh, that division is so like heavy at the top that it almost feels as if there isn't any movement for anyone because we have Sipe and Francis Ngannou fighting for the belt coming up. We have Curtis Blades, Jared Zeno, Rosenstruck, Derek Lewis, and then Volkov. So Derek Lewis, I feel like he's a little bit, he he may be ranked at number four, but I don't see him in the title picture at any point in time. I I could see a world where Volkov jumps over both uh, Rosenstruck and Blades. Do you see something like that happening?
1: Well, the, the biggest issue for, for Volkov or Blades or anybody else, outside of Ngannou, nobody really generates as much interest as, as Derek Lewis. I mean, if Stipe wins and he decides he wants to have an MMA fight, I heard he's been trying to get boxing fights. The fact of the matter is the only other heavyweight who people would be interested or excited to see him fight would be Derek Lewis. Derek Lewis has fan base. Derek Lewis has made multiple – had multiple – viral knockouts, had multiple viral moments where he's made some kind of comment, you know, the ball, my balls are hot or whatever else he said. And, um, so, so he's the guy who has the most cute, the most, uh, impact as far as Q rating with the fans. It could generate maybe a pay-per-view, some pay-per-view buys or could generate some kind of interest. I mean, he's, he's not the most dangerous fighter as far as skill set, but as far as like the drama that comes with him, the late, late turnaround knockouts and the, um, and the kind of character he is, and the kind of popularity he's carved out for himself, uh, he's probably the best option if Hay wants to make money and wants to be kind of highlighted in his next fight. Because I think is at a point where he's trying to make money. He's trying to maximize his earnings and finish out his career. Uh, fighting Volkov isn't going to get him any more money. Fighting Curtis Blades isn't going to get him any more money. The only guy who's a money fight at heavyweight outside of Ngannou would be Derrick Lewis. So I, I don't think that Volkov jumps Derrick Lewis, especially since Derrick Lewis beat Volkov by beat Volkov by knockout. It'd be hard to to overcome those two things working against him.
0: Well we're sitting here talking about C Miocic, and I believe the fight against Ngannou's already been announced. That is his next fight. Um they yeah, well, are fighting on March 27, 2021. Yeah, well,
1: that's, well that's what I mean. If he beats him, he he he's he's been going back and forth about he wants big fights. The only other big fight in the heavyweight division out well Jones will be next if I recall correctly there would be Jones. So but outside of if somebody gets hurt or something happens, Lewis is the next biggest name out there after Jones. I mean, Jones has not had a heavyweight fight. Jones is coming from light heavyweight. But if you take Jones out of the equation, Lewis has got the best record. He's already got a win over Nganu. He's got a win over um he's got a win over Volkov. So how would any how would any either one of those guys be able to jump, you know, jump him, you know? He he pretty did much you Did you see
0: that uh as of now that and Ganu's opened up as a favorite over Steve Do you think that that's actually
1: a thing? Do you think that's going to come well, to fruition? It, I, I, I think he's a favorite because Steve A and, and Alistar actually have something in common. Alist- Alistar at this point isn't the physical dynamo he used to be. If you notice him, he looks a hair slower. Obviously, his shin was never great, it's gotten worse. His ability, he even, even his, his ability to build on bad position, on good positions, the positions he wants to be, his lesson. It's the same thing with Stipe. Stipe's been in a lot of wars in his way up the heavyweight division. And in his last three fights with Daniel Cormier, he took a beating in the second one, took a beating in the third one, and got knocked out in the first one. So he's never really had an easy fight. Even against Ngannou, the fight was very physically exhausting for him. So Stipe hasn't looked as athletic he hasn't looked as fast. He hasn't looked quite as durable as he as he, as he he had earlier in his run. So I think a lot of people are thinking, yeah, Stipe could outlast him. But even now, we don't know if he can outlast him because Stipe's kind of looked kind of gassed and a little bit faded in fights against a guy who was really past his physical prime and a guy he had a tremendous amount of physical and technical advantages over in Daniel Cormier. So they're thinking if Ngannou gets to him early, Stipe's not going to be able to come back like he did in the first fight. And even if the fight goes rounds, nobody has any faith in Steve A's ability to really walk Nganu down over five rounds. At his peak, he got dead tired and, and barely had anything left. They're thinking at this point, he might not be able to replicate it. He might get tired. He might make a mistake. He might gas. And when he makes that mistake, Ngannou is going to put the put the coffin nails in. So I understand why. That I understand, based off what I've seen from Steve A and how Ngannou's been knocking everybody out, I see why they think he's the favorite.
0: So let's go back to Volkov for a second, since he's the one who picked up the win on Saturday. Do you think that he—who should he face next, then? Should you look at him getting that rematch against Derek Lewis? Should he potentially go up, up against Jairzina Rosenstruck? Is that a better fight for him? Who do you think—because he's sitting at number five right now—who should he face next? In order to kind of jockey for position in the lightweight division.
1: Before before I say exactly, I want excuse me. I want to make sure that we uh, we give Volkov his, his Volkov and his team their credit for that win because even though Alistar has been faded, you know I, I already mentioned some of his shortcomings, physical and uh, and things of that nature. The fact of the matter is Volkov fought the right fight necessary to beat him. Since yeah. Alistar has been fragile his whole career. At this point, what he's gotten to the habit of doing is finding rest spots. He'll go up against the cage, he'll cover up, guys will be so determined to land headshots that he can just cover up, slowly work his way off the cage and escape to get back to open space to where guys don't have the technical skill, whether it's the footwork or the offense to get to him, or he can get tied up in clinches, beat the hell out of somebody, and then by the time they break free and they're back in open space, they're they're basically a target because their gas tank is gone. Their legs are gone. They've been taking a beating and now he can just pick them apart at distance. Volkov was able to escape those positions. When he got him on the cage, he didn't just throw to the head. He threw body-head combinations. He attacked the legs. He put pressure on him. And when o- Overeem tried to tie, up him, tie him up in clinches, he didn't accept them. He was punching in clinches. He was turning Overeem. He was escaping him and basically keeping the pressure on him so that Overeem couldn't get, a, he didn't have a rest zone. When he got hurt, he, he didn't have a place to tie up. When he was looking for rest spots on the cage and he could just cover up, that wasn't a rest spot because he was getting touched to the head and the body. So Volkov's people put him in position to win and maximize the physical tools he had. And I wanted to make sure they had credit for that. As far as who's next, I mean, Volkov's in no position to call out anybody. I guess Rosenstruck would be the best option for him right now. That would be the best option. Um, I can't imagine Derek Lewis giving him a rematch. I mean, why would I rematch you? I've already beaten you. There's no, There's nothing in it for me. So the best option would be the if Roger Strike wins his next fight, that would probably be the best option for him.
0: Okay. Got some good thoughts on that. Um, what are your thoughts about Alex Overing? A lot of the talk now is whether or not he will retire. Do you think his time is up in the cage? He openly talked about this being his last run at the belt. So with this loss, which was pretty much... One sided and looking at the rest of the division, looking at those top five, do you think he should? Do you think this is it? Do you think we are seeing the last of the Devolution Man?
1: I I think it should be, to be honest. Um, I don't dislike, I don't dislike Overeem. And to be honest, at the heavyweight division, anything can happen. I mean, the fact of the matter is, it's still super thin. And even the guys who have the athleticism and the power to get to Overeem. They don't necessarily have the skill set, the strategy, or the uh, direction in their corner to take advantage of him the way he should be. If you if you look at his record, it's not like he's been manhandled. It's not like he's been dominated. He hasn't been. He's been For the most... out a lot.
0: Like he's been stopped. If you look at his record, he's been stopped quite a bit, lazy.
1: No, well, he's been st- he's been stopped quite a bit. But what I'm saying in, in 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 him being stopped. He's not being stopped by guys who, who lack seasoning or guys who haven't been in with elite guys. He's not getting beat up by, you know, guys who can't fight. There's not some five and and0 guy coming in and just wiping That's the floor. You know. Okay. And, and the fight, even with the fight with Rosenstruck, he basically had that fight won. He had that fight won, and he lost because he got killed with four seconds left. He fa- he finds a way to manage those last four seconds. He wins the fight. He was basically outclassing him, out, out wrestling him, controlling enough of the striking exchanges where Rosenstruck was down on all the cards. All he had to do was get through four, four, four seconds. But as we've spoken before, his ability to take shots isn't that great. And his ability to recover from shots isn't that great. And that's ultimately what hindered him. If Overeem had even a hint of a chin, a decent chin, an average chin, he'd probably be undefeated in his last couple of fights because a lot of his fights have just come down to his inability, his complete inability to take shots. But when you look at who he's been knocked out by, Rosenstruck, world-class striker. Curtis Blades, not a world-class striker, but one of the better heavyweights, big punching power. Francis Ngannou, who's probably pound for pound, the fastest and hardest-hitting heavyweight in the world. So it's not like he's getting knocked out by nobodies. Volkov would have been the first guy who can't really punch who knocked him out. But based on a skill set and strategy, he could still fight. He could probably still fight and put some wins together. If Andre Rossi can do it, Overeem can do it. But the thing about it is he he almost has no margin for error at this point. And, and he's going to have to have a long road to be put back into contention. So the question is, does he want to spend the next year and a half, two years, maybe three, working his way back into contention when he has no margin for error? He has to basically fight a pitch-perfect fight because at this stage, even an unseasoned guy could clip him. So I think if he wants to be a world-class heavyweight, he probably has to consider retiring because at this point he's getting knocked out by guys who don't punch hard. Volkov hits hard, but Volkov, Volkov didn't knock out Greg Hardy. Volkov's not a big isn't a big puncher. Um, and I think his team and, and Overeem have gotten the most out of his body and the most out of his skills possible. I don't think that anybody can fight a perfect fight where you're not catching anything in return. And um, especially not Overeem. He, he, he lacks the defensive prowess and boxing range. Especially when guys aren't scared of him, so I think re- I think retiring really might be in the future for him. At this point, he's achieved everything he could. He's been a title challenger in multiple divisions. He won grand prix. He was a kickboxing legend. He's really an MMA legend. Um, it just seems like it's not destined for him to win a world title in this in the UFC. And um, it's nothing to be ashamed of. He's still probably one of the top five heavyweights of all time. But ultimately, his ability, his inability to take punishment and recover punishment, his been been his Achilles heel. Same thing as Frank Mir. Frank Mir could have been an all-time great, but he can't take punishment either. And once you can't take punishment, when you have no room for error, it's really hard to win fights. It is very, very hard to win fights.
0: So speaking of the all-time heavyweight list, where does Overeem sit on yours?
1: As far as skills, I would put him maybe two or three. As far as actual results, especially, I have to say, I mean, the length of his career matters. I'd say he's probably be like top five behind Fedor He's probably behind Fedor. Who else? Stipe. Maybe one of the Noguera brothers. And I, I don't know if, if I'd go. Maybe Dan, D, I'd maybe go DC. don't know if I'd go DC or um, I don't know if I'd go DC or Kane. One of one of those two will go ahead of him. I think at, at this point right now. Well, no, I take that back. I go. I'd go Fedor. I'd go uh, Noguera, Crow Cop, and then it'd be yeah, either DC or Kane, and then it'd be Overing. Top five probably is overall fighter. Probably top three or top two as far as skill set.
0: All right, that's some good. That's some good thoughts there. So I want to move into the co-main event where we saw an even more startling knockout and and a very similar conversation. Was it where, startling though? Um, for me, no. For me to be honest with you, Schwann, no, I wasn't. I wasn't too surprised with that. I was kind of surprised with. Maybe when it occurred, but if we look at what's been going on with Frankie Edgar over the last few years, this shouldn't be so rattling to us. Um, but before we talk about Frankie Edgar, let's talk about Sanhagen and where he sits in, this, in, in the suddenly deep Bantamweight division with this stoppage here. Where do you put him next? It seems like a lot of people are having a conversation about him potentially being the next individual to get a shot at the 135-pound belt after Aljermaine Sterling. Where do you think this goes and what's next for, um, for him?
1: I would agree. I think after whoever, whoever wins out of um, Peter Yan and Aljermaine Sterling, that Corey Sanhagen will most likely be in position to challenge the next person. I could see TJ Dillashaw, because I know he's coming back, I could see him coming back and trying to demand a fight with Sanhagen to try to jump the line and put himself right back in title contention. And I don't know how appealing that would be to Sanhagen as far as, I mean, TJ's a big name. I know we had the whole cheating conspiracy. There's a lot of people who still believe that TJ was one of the best weights of all time. And a fight with TJ would be a big event. And, you know, if he beats TJ, you know, there'd be no argument as far as where he would stand in the title picture, and it, it should be a fairly big fight. Um, then again, at this stage, given the way he's won his last couple fights and the previous streak he was on before he lost to Sterling, I think it's hard to even say that, uh, that Sanhagen hasn't already earned a title shot. So it's just a matter of whether he'd want to accept the challenge or make some extra money and risk his title spot fighting TJ Dillashaw. But outside of him choosing to fight TJ Dillashaw, there's no need for him to fight anybody else. I would say he'd go right to the top of the line and be, be the next challenger for the title.
0: See, I don't even think that TJ should be in the conversation. We're going to talk about TJ. You can put him in there with someone like Jose Aldo. Let them have that fight, and then let's, let's talk about TJ after that. Um, Corey Sanhagen needs to be next in line for the winner of P- Peter Jan and Algermain Al- Sterling. He shouldn't have to fight again with the way he's dispatched both Marlon Morales and Frankie Edgar back-to-back. We need to stop with this he needs one more fight type of type of situation because they really don't. Like the same, you see the same thing going on with Charles Oliveira right now where, where people talk about he needs one more fight for a shot at the belt. No, he doesn't. Not if you look at the rest of that division from top to bottom, he doesn't. And I feel the same way about Corey Sanhagen. He needs to chill out. Um, the fight with Aljamain Sterling and Peter is happening at UFC 260, I believe, sit back and ride the wave and come back after that and, and get a fight for this summer for the belt.
1: I think the main, because the only reason it would happen is because, you know, let's say it's one of these fight of the year type fights. Let's just say it is. Then you know what's going to happen. There's going to be a rematch, which means he's going to be sitting on the sidelines for anywhere from six to eight, six to eight, six to 12 months. So we get to that point. I don't know if he wants to sit on the sidelines for a whole year because you lose momentum. TJ Dillashaw has a big win. Next thing you know, they're singing TJ Dillashaw's praises and San Sandhagen's on the outside looking in. But, in a perfect world, Sanhagen should be the next title title challenger.
0: One thing I would do is say that if Corey Sanhagen's fighting again, it needs to be on the same card where that title fight is happening with the intention on being if somebody falls out last minute, he gets to step in.
1: Yeah, I would that's agree with I, that.
0: That's how I would I look to protect my, uh, protect my fighter from that whole situation as you just mentioned.
1: I would agree with that. Um. I don't know. A lot of people were kind of shocked by this fight, but um, my thing was Frankie Edgar. One of the main advantages Frankie Edgar had when he fought at lightweight was that he had he always had a speed and a kind of a cardio and quickness advantage. And when he dropped weight classes, he lost that. He when he went to fe- when he went to featherweight, you notice his volume what with- wasn't as big a gap between him and the f- people he fought. His f- his movement on the feet, his quickness, it wasn't as big an advantage. And moving down the band and weight, that just highlighted that. Even though a lot of pe- people had the conversation that, oh, well, he fights a light heavy, lightweight, he's fighting these guys who are 170, 180, they're just too big, they're too strong. And people factor that in with the punching power and the physical strength. Nobody ever talks about the advantage he had in cardio, the advantage he had in agility, the advantage that he had in movement and quickness and pace that allowed him to navigate
0: All right, sorry about that. Pick up talking about
1: Frankie Edgar and and what you saw. Yeah, a lot of people, they were saying Frankie Edgar is a good match because they saw what Aljamain Sterling did to Corey Sanhagen. He took him down and finished him quickly. What they forgot was, one, nobody expected Aljamain Sterling to come and press Corey Sanhagen like that. And two, at Aljamain Sterling's position, he's younger, he's fresher, he's more agile, he's more athletic than Frankie Edgar is at this stage. He's also longer. So there's certain entries, certain certain positions he can get that Frankie Yeager not going to get because, one, Frank, Ye- Frank Yeager isn't his athletic prime anymore. Two, Frank Yeager doesn't have the length. And, and three, Frank Yeager isn't the grappler that Aljamain Sterling is. Frank Yeager gets you in certain positions. You can navigate your way through. You can defend. You can work your way back up. Aljamain Sterling is the kind of guy when he gets you down, you stay down. And if he gets you down and starts working submissions, he generally finishes. So even though Frankie Yeager is a tough guy, he's experienced. The fact of the matter is that this weight class, he doesn't have the advantages he had at lightweight. He doesn't have that speed advantage, he doesn't have that volume advantage, he doesn't have that quickness advantage that he used to outposition, position, and wear, wear guys down. At featherweight, you saw him getting hit more than normal, even by guys who weren't top-end strikers. And at phantomweight, you've seen him have a lot of trouble facing guys who aren't really even dynamic athletes because at a smaller weight class, that once again, that speed advantage isn't there, that cardio advantage isn't there. And you saw Frankie get a little bit touched up. You saw him not be able to separate from fighters as much. You saw him not be able to get takedowns or get positions the way he wanted to. So when he fought Sanhagen, my concern was he wasn't going to be able to get Sanhagen down, for one, because he'd have to get through the range to get Sanhagen's long-range weapons, the jab, the, the straights, the kicks, the knees. He wouldn't be able to get through those because Frankie Edgar's never been a great defensive fighter, especially when he's pressing. And my second concern was even if he gets him down, at this at this weight class, with a guy who's got Sanhagen's grappling chops, there's a good chance that he's not gonna be able to control him. And Sanhagen gonna be able to create a scramble, get a submission, or work his way back up to the feet. Either way, I didn't think there would be any sort of way that Frankie was gonna get Sanhagen unmolested. And that's essentially what happened. He was pressing him. He was pressing him, thinking if I could get him to the cage, I can tie him up, I can drag him down, I can punish him. When he took that last step forward, Sanhagen just exploded. He, saw, he knew what Frankie's only chance of winning was, was to press. He used his volume to get into position to take him down up against the cage, and he had a plan for it, and he just threw the knee and countered him. And if you look at Frankie Hager's career, if you walk, look through his career, you shouldn't be shocked by this for a couple of reasons. One, Frankie's to the point in his career where he's been KO'd recently in the past couple of years where it's, not, it's been shown it's not impossible to knock him out. And two, if you look throughout his fight career, in numerous fights, whether he got stopped or not, Frankie has been dropped early and often by big, strong, long, athletic people. It's happened repeatedly. He got knocked down how many times against Gray Maynard? He got knocked, he got knocked out by Brian Ortega in the first round. He got, he got knocked out by Chan jung in the first round. He gets knocked out by Corey Sanhagen in the first round. There's been lots of instances where you can catch Frankie Edgar when he's trying to impose his will on you and get, get, get to his spots for wrestling. And this is just yet another example of it. And in this case, he was fighting an explosive fighter who caught him clean, and that was it. Um...
0: But I don't even worse. Is that, is that, right. As you just mentioned, that he's been getting um, that he's been stopped before. If you look at his at his run, he's been getting stopped faster in his fights, which is what's is more telling to me. Like I'm gonna pull it up real quick, and we're yeah, gonna look you, at we're gonna look you, at just how fast he's been he's been getting stopped.
1: You make since, a good point
0: since then, because if you look at his his current run, his current run of defeats, he was stopped by Corey Sandhagen, 28 seconds in the first round. Chan Sun Jung stopped him three minutes 18 seconds in the first round. Then he goes five rounds with uh, Max Holloway. Brian Ortega stopped him four minutes into the first round. Then he went five rounds, this is just his, his losses, he went five rounds with Jose, Aldez, or Jose Aldo in 2016. Five rounds with Jose Aldo in 2015, five rounds with, or excuse me, 2013, five rounds with Benson Henderson in 2012, five rounds with Benson Henderson in 2012, and then he had the fight with Gray Maynard. Um,
1: Four rounds in the five rounds.
0: Yep. Yeah, so, that, I mean... He spent,
1: he, spent, he spent a lot of time in the cage, and there used to be a time where you didn't really see Frankie Edgar get hurt. Like, he never really got hurt in fights. He he might get roughed up a little bit, but he was never getting stunned and rocked. In the first Benson Henderson fight, he got... Up kicked and got busted up really bad. And from that point on, you started noticing Frankie Edgar, guys having a little bit easier time getting to him on the feet and him having a little bit harder time getting to the positions he wanted to as far as the wrestling. And I I don't think Frankie Edgar's done. I think he could still fight. I just don't know that he's elite anymore because the same issues he's having, he had against Sanhagen, he can have against other fighters. There's guys who are more athletic than Sanhagen. There's guys who comparably hit as hard, harder than him and there's guys who at least offensively their skill sets are good enough where they could imitate something very similar to him now luckily he's got guys like sean o'malley who can't wrestle um dominic cruz who's a little bit faded as well who would be a good matchup for an ex- a fairly exciting fight that is low risk as far as the punishment going but it's not like there's not other guys in division like imagine that peter young was fighting hit him with those kind of shots you know peter young could do that algermaine stelling isn't a striker but given his his length and his grappling style, he could get Frankie Edgar a long night too. There's 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 no easy fights for him at this point. He doesn't have his quickness advantage, he doesn't have his cardio advantage, he doesn't have a volume advantage. He's better defensively than he's ever been. He's not bad as far as an offensive striker, but the fact of the matter, he's not as durable. He's not as well conditioned, and due to the fact that the due to the fact that the, the changes in athleticism, he's getting a lot easier to get hit. I mean, you watch the fights Anybody who's determined to get to Frankie Edgar has gotten to Frankie Edgar, and they've gotten to him early and often. So I won't say that he's done fighting, but as far as being an elite fighter, I don't know which one of the top four guys in this division that he beats. You know, I think Rafael and Nsunciau might beat him at this stage. I just don't know who he clearly can dominate to get back to title position. I think we might be seeing him in his later stages of his career where he's just having fun fights and big fights. I don't know the title fights are in his future at this stage.
0: What else from the rest of this card stood out to you if I wanted to touch on that a little bit? Um, we have the Clay Guida Michael Johnson fighting. In Benil- I want to talk about the Benil Dariush and Carlos Diego. Diego before
1: we get that fight, let, let's talk about Michael Johnson really quickly. Um, Michael Johnson is a guy who I've always thought has had almost world-class athleticism. Like he's just been tremendously explosive. Hits tremendously hard. He's actually a really durable fighter. I mean, I've never seen outside of Justin Gaethje actually being even when he was stopped. I, I don't think I've ever seen anybody hit him as clean and as hard as Michael Johnson did. And you saw what, Justin, what Michael Johnson did to um, Dustin Poirier when he when you know just blew him out blew him out of the cage. Just, Dustin could do nothing with him because of the speed and the athleticism. And Michael's actually become a, a decent, if not really good, striker. And of course, he had always had his wrestling. But I feel like he's been an underachiever because of his inability to adjust in fights and his lack of IQ, I really feel like his team knew he was a strong, explosive guy. And instead of really layering his striking and developing technical discipline and an awareness as a fighter, they just lean on the the fact that he's a tough guy, he's a fast guy, and he's a guy who hits really, really hard. And that would make up for most things. And if you look at a lot of his fights, they're fights that he was oftentimes winning or in full control of until he made a mistake, whether it's a defensive lap and getting KO'd, uh, defensive lack in a scramble and getting submitted or just basically not fighting with enough pace and awareness that he gets out hustled over the uh, period of three to five rounds. Um, it's just a, it's an example of how far that athleticism and physical ability can take you but it's also an example that ultimately when all things are made equal what it comes down to is your IQ and the actual skills you bring to the table. And I feel at a certain point Michael Johnson just plateaued as a fighter technically and just leaned even more heavily on his physical skills, and while they were good enough for him to compete, they were never good enough for him to get over the hump to ever get close to contention ever again. And he was a guy who came off the Ultimate Fighter, who, who was considered a potential title challenger at some point, a potential mm-hmm. maybe even a future champion. And uh, I mean, he's lost four in a row, and prior to that, he he won two in a row, and he lost three in a row prior to that. I mean, his record's been miserable in the UFC in the past couple of years, and. I feel he might be a step or two from getting cut himself. I mean, he's put on exciting fights, but he's he hasn't been able to consistently put together wins. And I think he really might have hit the end of the road with this. I mean, Clay Gu- is a very experienced, very tough guy. But I mean, losing to, this ver- version of Qu- Clay Guida Gu- is not a good sign for your career or for you as a fighter moving forward.
0: And what's interesting is that I wrote about that because I remember when Johnson was considered a title challenger, him and Jonathan Brookings. Were really looked at that way, and neither man really panned out. And it's so, it's got to be more unfortunate looking at Johnson, especially because he has wins over the guy who should be the current champion.
1: He, he, has he has is big, win big wins.
0: Yeah, he has big wins over Dustin Poirier, big wins over Tony Ferguson, big wins over um, Edson Barbosa. He has Joe on
1: Gleason Tebow, Melvin Gillard, you know, Nate. You know, he just has a lot of big wins but he was, never able to put, he was never able to win in the biggest spots and build off of it. You know, it's, it's amazing. It's amazing to see a guy with that kind of talent who just could never get over the hump.
0: Very true, sir, very true. All, all, his, fight,
1: all his fights are very memorable. You see him, you remember Johnson versus Gaethje. You remember Johnson versus Poirier. You remember Johnson versus Diaz. You, you remember those fights. Those were high impact, exciting, back and forth fight of the night type fights. But he, he was unable to win the majority of them. And ultimately, yeah, Gaethje
0: hurt too as well. He yeah, had to hurt very badly.
1: He could have won that either, but that's the story of him. He, he was always in position to win. He was always about to win. All he had to do was fight a couple more seconds and he would have won, and he always found some way to lose. And now that his durability isn't there anymore, because he's been in wars, he can't, he can't take punishment like he used to. I mean, Clay Guida was rocking him on the feet. Clay Guida's a tough guy. He's experienced, but Clay Guida is nobody's power puncher. I don't know the last time Clay Guida rocked somebody. Maybe BJ Penn? I mean, good lord! It—he's—he's it, he's in the same position. Great athlete, great ability. He's declined a little bit, but once you get to the point where you can't—you can't, can't take sustained punishment, and you have the style he has with the defensive holes he has, you essentially put a cap on your career. And at this stage, I—I I don't know if it's good for him to be a professional fighter because I don't know what top 15 guy he wins against nowadays. I concur
0: with that, I concur. Yeah, sir. I concur. I concur with that. Um. Beno Dariush and Carlos Diego Freja, these guys are also two top-ranked um, lightweights, and they were put in a situation to fight each other. Uh, how bad matchmaking is that for them because they had to go through each other again in order to barely move up the ladder?
1: Well, it wasn't bad matchmaking. It was bad matchmaking in the sense that, you, you know, both these guys were kind of making some headway. So instead of getting a named guy or instead of getting a... You know, a, a guy with a name, a guy with some financial value, or a guy who would move them, who 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 would make them ha- have a big jump in their career, like Charles Rivera got when he fought Tony Ferguson. They fought a guy who, whether whether Carlos won or whether Benio won, it wasn't going to make them have a huge leap in their career because neither one of those guys was considered elite in a, or in and around the elite, not by the casual fans, I guess, by the hardcores. So to that degree, it hurts because both guys. You could have had two guys moving up, fighting someone else and moving up in the ranking. So you have more options for potential opponents for guys who are in the lower end of that top 10 of the light heavyweight, the lightweights. But instead, now you knocked one of them off and he's got to go to the back of the line. And it pushed Benil forward because he had a very impressive, fairly one-sided performance, but essentially knocked off another potential contender that you could use to either test somebody to see if they're ready to make the jump or a guy who could prove himself worthy of being in that, top five through seven of the lightweight division. Um, some things the UFC does doesn't really make sense to me. And to be quite honest, even in winning this fight, I don't know that Benil's going to get a named guy. Obviously, Dustin Poirier isn't fighting him. Why would he? Nate Diaz comes back. He ain't fighting him. Why would he? Charles Oliveira isn't fighting him. Why would he? I guess maybe Michael Chandler might. But I don't know if that he's a big enough name for Michael Chandler to take that kind of risk because Benil is a very determined, very tough, very well-conditioned, very punishing a very well-skilled and experienced opponent, you know, lost to Benio Darius sends Michael Chandler all the way out of the top 10. So I don't I don't know that there's a feasible matchup for him that actually works for him and does anything that benefits his career. I mean, if he fights Tony Ferguson, what does that do for him at this age? Oliveira's already dominated Ferguson. If he fights Conor McGregor, why would Conor McGregor fight him, you know? um uh, it seems like the only other option to him would be like an RDA or somebody like that. Maybe a Dan Hooker, I guess. I mean, otherwise, there, there's no real name guy who's available that would really help him out by fighting. I mean, Paul Felder, RDA, that's probably the only guys who are really available to him. I guess Connor could fight somebody like him, but I don't know that Connor. I don't know that Connor takes that kind of fight in his fight back. I'm not saying it's impossible. I just don't know that he does.
0: So we're talking about dangerous threats and it's kind of a, a great segue to go from Benil Darius to uh, Gilbert Burns because now Gilbert Burns is fighting for the 170 pound title at UFC 258 which is this weekend and looking at this fight you know Kamaru Usman and Gilbert Burns they may not be two names that causes people to immediately jump off the, uh, off the ladder and want to buy this card but is this an interesting fight to you? That's my first question, Shawan. To me, this is, very, this is a very interesting stylistic fight to me because I want to see because plus they used to train together. They trained together for an extensive period of time. And I want to see what they have for each other. Uh, because Usma has now left and he's with um, is he over there with Henry Hoof now? I believe.
1: Uh, I think, or is he with team? Uh, he's with or is he with the Trevor Whitman? I think he's with Trevor uh-huh. Whitman now.
0: Yeah, that, there he is. There he goes. There he is. He's with Trevor Whitman now. Does this fight, is this a, is this an exciting, interesting fight to you, Sean? That's the first question I
1: have. To me, I, I find interest in it because a lot of what Usman, a lot of Usman's success when he fights guys is the fact that they haven't really experienced his strength and his physicality and his athleticism and, and, and the pressure he generates as far as his cardio. Like, he doesn't get tired, he really bullies guys. And when you're not prepared for something or you don't really know how to gauge something, it's hard for you to... Come up with an effective game plan or stick with it because you're assuming how strong could this guy be? And, you know, I mean, you're a grappler. There's probably been guys, you know, you're maybe you're in a tournament. The guy looks pretty strong, but you're like, you know, I've gone with big guys. I can handle it. And then he gets his hands on you. You're like, whoa, I didn't, I didn't expect this. And had you knew how strong he was, maybe you'd have a better game plan. But you assumed maybe I can match him in strength because I face bigger guys or I'm pretty strong myself. And then when he gets his hands on you and kind of can position you or hold you in a certain position. it's like okay, I wasn't expecting to have to work this hard or have to work from this position. Gilbert Burns has had experience with Usman. So Usman's speed shouldn't, imp- shouldn't shock him. His athletic- overall athleticism, his physical strength and his physicality and his cardio shouldn't catch him off guard. Which, what might catch him off guard is the fact that Usman's got a little bit more meticulous in how he fights. He's cleaned up his stand-up as far as his defense, his placement of his shots and how he sets them up and how he transitions from striking to grappling. So that might catch Burns a little bit unawares because Usman's better technically than he was when they were training together earlier. Um, the interesting question now becomes: Is Usman willing to impose his will on the on the ground because of the nature of Gilbert Burns' ability to grapple his his grappling pedigree? That being said, I don't know that at welterweight the Burns has really dominated anybody on the ground as far as submissions or even or even ground control ground ground control and positioning. I, I don't know that he's ever done that. I I don't recall him ever doing that to anybody. So that that advantage he has on the ground may not be as pronounced when he's facing a guy who's also educated on the ground, but maybe two to three times stronger, two to three times more physical, and two to three times in better shape. I mean, Usman spent some time on the ground with Damien Maya, and he he held his own. Um, Burns is more a little bit more athletic. He's fresher. I don't know that he's a better grappler than Damien Maya, even at this stage again, Damien Maya's career.
0: See the last. No one's really played that ground game with Gilbert Burns though. It's almost like you you don't want to try that shit. At, at, at 170, he has fought. I mean, his fight with Colonel Nelson too. Nelson wasn't trying to play the ground game with him, and Nelson is someone that can hang with him in that space. The only person that was attempting to was Damian Maya, and when they went to the ground, Maya or uh, Burns was getting out of positions with Maya that no one else gets out of. So, from a strictly grappling standpoint, if I'm in Usman's corner, you don't, want, you don't want anything to do with that space. If you're not in maybe half guard, holding Burns down, if you somehow score a takedown you get directly to the side, okay, sure, fine. But you don't want to play that game too long because he's a dangerous threat. And he is very—it'll it's, it's, be interesting to see if he can get off bottom, per se. But I think he'll be able to use the position well from like a transition standpoint to be able to create space and get back up or, or to create the scrambles that leads to people getting caught in uh, subs. And I don't think anybody wants that.
1: I, I would like to think that he could. And I know that with his grappling skill, he, he has more options as far as escapes because of the threat he poses as far as his, his submissions. But you know, I've seen guys who are who are, I would consider better defensive wrestlers because Burns always wants to go on the ground. So I, I feel like he'll give up takedowns to, if that's what Usman wants to do to get to the position he wants. But if you give up position to Usman where he can just get you down, Usman's a fairly intelligent grappler. And even even though Burns is probably light years ahead of him skill-wise, when you're facing a wrestler with that kind of pedigree and that kind of physical strength advantage, where he can physically whole guys in positions who usually don't get held down in positions. I don't know how I don't know how much energy Burns would have to spend to create that scramble or to get into a guard position or a position where he can threaten. And if he is to spend a lot of energy getting to those positions, I haven't really seen Burns operating in a, in a grinding type high-pace, physically exhausting fight. Usually in the fights he's been in, he's he's almost been in complete control against Tyron Willie, he was basically running the show. Against Damian Maya, he was basically running the show against Gunnar Nelson he was the more physical, more athletic person. He was dictating terms of engagement on the feet and on the ground more or less. Um he won't have that physical advantage. I don't know that he can impose his will on Usman. And I don't know that he can I don't know that he can hurt him. I'm not saying Usman is unhurtable, but Burns isn't really super slick defensively and I don't know that he's very devastating offensively on the feet. As much as he hit Tyron Woodley, he he wasn't really ever close to putting him away in in my opinion. So um I think that in the transitions and if Usman can kind of make him work on the feet, kind of put him up against the fence, chop away at him, kind of get him early, you know, get to the body, put some body-head combinations to him, I I think that the pressure and the activity might actually set up Usman to take him down maybe later in the second round or the third round where Burns might not have that explosiveness to finish him. He might get close, but he won't be able to explode to finish it. And when he does explode, Uzman will ex- explode and escape. And then Burns has pretty much poured out his gas tank and he- he's strictly on the defensive. I feel like there's spots he can get Uzman in, but I just don't know how he, he handles it when he's not he's not the bully. Because in a lot of those fights, he's had clear advantages physically and on the ground. And at least half of those advantages don't exist against Uzman, at least half of them.
0: Who do you think wins?
1: Uh... I want to say Burns. I just have a really hard time figuring out. Unless something goes terribly wrong with Usman, I don't know how he wins this fight. I don't know how he gets to fight to the ground without exhausting himself. I don't know how he gets to the fight to the ground without taking a fairly comprehensive beating, or at least if nothing else, he goes fifty-fifty with Usman. But Usman's been in some some kind of burn, some barn burners recently. He he can fight at a pace. We've we've seen that recently. And um, I on paper it. The grappling is a clear advantage for him, but everything built around it and after, built around it doesn't seem to be a advantage for him. So I, I think Uzman wins some kind of decision. If Burns really pushes it, I think Uzman can get the stoppage. If Burns doesn't push for it and looks to survive, then I think Usman goes wins by decision. Like I said, unless something tremendously wrong goes, like Usman's chin goes or his gas tank goes or something like that, I, I just don't see him as a careless enough fighter or even a, a just dumb enough fighter to put himself in the positions to get beat by Burns.
0: All right there, sir. That's a pretty interesting take. I'm taking Usman, but we'll see how it really goes. Um, We have a co-main event. Macy Barber is back fighting Alexa Grasso, and I think a lot of people are kind of surprised that this is a co-main event, but it's a very thin card if you look at it from the top to bottom. What are your thoughts about this fight here? Who comes out the winner and why?
1: Um, I think the issue with Barber is first she's coming off an injury. So facing Grasso is kind of a tough get back right up right away, especially with the knee injury because is athletic, she's fairly mobile, she's quick, uh, she hits with some decent power and she she she's a boxer, she does a lot of combinations, she kind of has high activity fights. So I'm, I'm kind of concerned to see how Barber holds up in that kind of fight against that kind of opponent. And also Barber's not really great in the mid-range. Her mid-range striking, her kicks all right, her long-range striking, her clinches is all right, but her mid-range boxing technique has never been great. A lot of her success has been that she's physically stronger and she can just punish these girls with whatever she's throwing out. And girls are so afraid of getting tied up in those clinches that maybe they get a little defensive or they try not to engage with her. Alexa Grasso, in my opinion, coming up a weight class should have a speed advantage, especially a hand speed advantage, and she's, while not great defensively in these in these mid-range boxing exchanges, she's fairly competent offensively with the jab, putting the, putting together the short combinations and counter strikes. And I feel like that's a very big area that she could exploit versus Barber that's been exploited before. I've seen Barber knocked around, beat up, and rocked by Roxanne Mardifari. You can say she was injured, but the fact that I, I can only go by what I saw, Mardifari was able to get her in spots in exchanges. And um, where she fought, I forgot the other girl she fought, but there's another girl she fought at at the weight class who isn't a power puncher at all and was beating her around, J.J. Aldridge. She fought her and J.J. Aldridge was beating her from pillar to post in the first round and the second round until Barbara landed something big. And while I think Barbara's skilled and when you land something it's never by accident, you're obviously throwing with mean intentions. The fact of the matter is defensively, she is flawed. A lot of her defense... Her def- any defensive success she has is because people are afraid of exchanging with her because of her power. People are afraid of getting close because of her physical strength, and usually she's a much better athlete than the girl she's fought. J.J. Allridge, better athlete. Um, Gillian, Gillian Robertson, Jillian Robertson can't box. She has the same problem uh, Macy Barber does. So that contributed to that. Even though she's a comparable athlete, she's such a ineffective striker that she basically set herself up to get smoked by a Barber. And um, Roxa Martifari, who is also an inferior athlete to Macy Barber, when fighting Alexa Grasso, she's fighting a girl who is comparable, if not a better athlete than her. So she won't have those advantages outside of strength to um, to lean on. I would still probably favor Barber because Grasso tends to go in lulls in fights. She tends to sometimes mentally check out. When, when she pushes, if an opponent accepts it, she usually builds on it and can win. But when an opponent, Pressures her back, you can see her start to throw a little bit less. You see her start to get a little bit more defensive, defensive, defensive in her fighting stance. And you see her kind of back herself in defenses or start, start letting those opponents build their own momentum. And again, someone like Carolina Kovacavich, who she had a big win against, um, who was so damaged and outclassed athletically, she could get away with that. Um, that's not going to be the case of Macy Barber. I feel like Macy Barber is a girl who, whether she's losing a fight or winning a fight, she's always in the fight mentally and always trying to win the fight and always trying to get back at her opponent. And I don't know that I always see that against Alexa Grasso. Alexa Grasso is best against people who she can outclass out and out athlete. Against her last opponent, she could do that. Carolina Kova she could do that. Heather Joe Clark, she could do that. Jody Escabel, she could do that. But when she started facing better people, Tatiana Suarez... Even Carla Esparza, who's got some grit and a lot of experience and knows how to fight out of bad spots, she's looked vulnerable at, at best. She's looked completely inept at worst. So I expect Macy Barber's mentality and her pressure to play a part in the fight. And if she can navigate those boxing, distance, boxing ranges, get into those clinches or chop Alexis Grasso up a distance, I say she wins the fight. If she lets Alexa Grasso get started early and get that jab going, It's going to be a long night for Macy Barber because I know she's been recovering from injury, but it takes a while for you to really learn how to be defensively sound and defensively responsible, especially in boxing. You're not going to pick that up overnight. And when the rubber hits the road, you'll start seeing the holes in Macy Barber's defensive striking again. So her only hope is that she can get to Grasso early. And when Grasso starts landing, that she can navigate that and take that punishment and continue to pressure her. Because as I said, when Grasso was continually pressured, she tends to make make mistakes. She tends to get a little tired. She tends to give fights away.
0: So do we live in a world where Macy Barber fights for a title?
1: Um, if she wins this fight, it won't be... It won't get her anywhere near a title, first of all. Meeting Alexa Grasso at this point isn't title worthy. But um, it will give her a path. I feel like if she could put together two two wins, they would probably put her in the realm of a title fight, to be quite honest. Uh, the UFC likes her clearly. They had her on the fast track. They had her fight, you know, Aldridge. Then they had her, fi- they had her fight Aldridge. They had her fight Modaferi. Modaferi is kind of the gatekeeper of the division. If you beat her, you kind of get to move to the next stage as far as who you're fighting because she's a name fighter and she's skilled enough where if you're not completely checked in mentally or you don't have a decent skill set, she will expose you. And so they had Barbara on the fast track. If Barbara wins this fight, I fully expect them to get her back on the fast track. Uh, Let's say she beat Alexa Grasso. Maybe they have her fight Antonina Shevchenko next. And then they probably have her fight somebody in the top seven through nine. And after that, you have her in position position where she could actually maybe challenge for a title.
0: Yeah, I I don't want to see it happen just because I don't want to hear her mouth. But uh, we may not be living in that world. I,
1: I don't. I don't. I don't. I don't. I personally don't think she's ready. She has a talent. I would say that she could beat some of the better girls. I mean, she'd probably beat the Just Sky right now in a rematch. With Roxy Modafari. There's more than likely a chance she beats her. Um, Antonia Shachenko, I, I would say it's probably sixty forty that she beats her. So that's a fair chance. But when she faces the Jennifer Mayas, the JoJo Calderwoods, even though she's a much better athlete, her limitations in her boxing are problematic, and the fact that she wouldn't be able to physically just bully them, knock them around, or or impose her will on them instantly makes those fights competitive. Um, maybe a Lauren Murphy, who's highly ranked. I-, I can see her maybe beating her, but JoJo, no. Jennifer Maya, no. Um, Cynthia Calvillo would cause her problems at this stage, and I don't want to think about what Jessica Andrade or Valentina Shevchenko would do to her.
0: Okay, good thoughts there, sir. Let's move on because I want to talk about one more topic before we close it out today. Paige Van Zandt, she lost at Knucklemania, pretty one sided fight in this. Paige, everybody knew this was coming. However, comma did this loss really injure Paige's viability as a fighter? Do you think her financial stock has dropped at all?
1: I don't think her stock has dropped at all because Paige is still one of the more recognized. I mean, she hasn't fought MMA in, what, a year now? And she'd still be more recognizable than 90% of the girls in any weight division in mixed martial arts. People would know who Paige Van Zandt is before they know who Amanda Nunes is. Maybe Holly Holm is the only person who's got close to as big a Q rating as her. But if I put Paige Van Zandt and Sarah McMahon in a room, people would be like, who's that girl standing next to Paige Van Zandt? If I put Paige Van Zandt next to Megan Anderson, people would be like, who's that girl standing next to Paige Van Zandt? I mean, who's the person in any division, champion or not? Who's that person who who has a big enough uh, name where they would be more popular than her? Or, be, or or if you had a choice of putting somebody on a mainstream show, Dancing with the Stars, even a talk show, if I'm choosing between Paige Van Zandt, who's the other star currently in the UFC who's even com- comparable as far as familiarity?
0: There isn't any um Amanda Nunez maybe. Maybe Just she's, that's, in, that's, she's in that's, commercials. That's,
1: that's only because she's been in commercials recently and she is a double champ. It took her being a double champ and being in a national television spot. And we still can't guarantee more people would know who Paige Zandt is. And and she's the top tippy top of her game. And we there's more people who know Paige Van Zandt than know who Clarissa Shields is.
0: That's true. So,
1: that's true. I mean, it, it doesn't affect it because it's not about whether she wins or loses. It's about her taking part in it and people wanting to see how she does. She lost, but she didn't, she didn't quit. She was competitive. She kept fighting. She was doing what Paige Van Zandt always does. She looks like a sorority girl who fights like, a sa- fights, fights like a sailor on a bender on a night, in, night on the streets. I mean, she's tough. She, she fights hard. Was she technically skilled? No. Did anybody expect her to be a great boxer, a great striker? No. She's never been one. That's like if she gets in a submission grappling event and she gets submitted, you're not shocked by it. She's not great at those things. What she was great at, it was overall as a fighter. She was tough, she's athletic, she's strong. She pushes the pace and is, is fragile as she looks as far as her image. She has actually really never been beaten into submission or actually quit. She's fought with a broken arm. She's been getting, she got five rounds of getting pieced up by Rose Namuun and she didn't get knocked out, she got submitted. I've never really seen her quit and she's been in some very high pace, very exhausting, very physically punishing fights. So as long as she continues to fight she and fights and gives good account of herself, I don't see how it lost them anything. She's still recognizable. She's still a name. She comes back. People want to see either a rematch or they want to see if she can put a win together. A lot of her, uh, her appeal isn't just in her fighting skill. It's kind of what she represents and the contrast of how she looks and how she talks and how she fights. She looks like somebody who'd be really afraid of contact and and would want to be technical and athletic. But if you think about it, she's really just a a fairly educated brawler when it comes down to MMA or boxing. She just kind of gets in there and goes at it.
0: That's true. She is basically a brawler when it comes to to, uh, throwing in
1: hands. People like that. It's like why they liked Oscar Deloitte. He's a pretty boy who was tough. She's not a great fighter, but nobody can say Paige is is soft. Nobody can say she's a quitter. Nobody can say she... Can't take a punch, or she'll just go down. You fight Paige Van Zandt, you are going to have to fight her. And anybody who questions her skill set, sure. But her heart, she fought like two and a half rounds with a broken arm. What, what are we talking about?
0: So let me ask you this then: Paige Van Zant versus um, Valerie Lareda. How much interest does that fight have? From a That's from fun. a from a MMA Twitter, I'm going to. Rule over this fight type of interest.
1: I don't understand why Bellator just didn't sign her for two fights just for that fight. Um, it'd be a huge fight. I mean, they're neither, I mean, Paige is obviously the more accomplished fighter at this point. She's fought world-class people. Lost, but she's fought them. Loretta hasn't proven anything. But at this, at this stage, Paige Van Zandt isn't light-year. Her skill set's kind of been exposed for how limited it is. It's our it's physicality, it's a clinch, it's scrambles, that's, that's really all to it. But j- just on the fact you have two what people consider to be typically attractive women who are, you know, who play up to their attractiveness and, and like to play that aspect of themselves up, Bellator could make a lot of money off that. They could they could set that up in some way somehow. And if you know, Paige beats her, it's no skin off Loretta's back, it's the best fighter she's ever fought in her career, the best and most accomplished fighter she ever fought in her career. She beats Paige VanZant. aunt. She's an established star, Paige beats her. She beat up on the girl that everybody thinks is so smarmy and cocky and attitude-y. If Laredo beats her, then they, they, she beats up on the MMA actress who who isn't really dedicated to the game and just wants to get paid. It, it's a fight that j- you have a lot of angles and I, I think you could generate a lot of interest with. Not because of the quality of the fight, but because of who's involved and how they look.
0: True, I definitely agree with that. I'm actually surprised that Bellator didn't sign her either, because that would have been, I mean, that fight right there was just sitting there waiting for them to make. It's,
1: pro- it's, it's probably the money, just because bare knuckles, they're trying to get draws. They're trying to get that short money. I mean, they're not thinking of her as a long-term draw. They need something big. Bellator's trying to have more of a long game, and they're not willing to pay stupid money to Page Manzan, If Page Manzan wasn't making a lot of money, a lot of a lot of money to do this, she wouldn't be exposing herself to this kind of punishment or this kind of um, event. True, true.
0: Uh, I wanted to ask you man, what's going on in the World of boxing? This is your time, man. Fill us in. What's up?
1: Um uh, recently we p- Caleb Plant, he's a he fights at um 160, 168 it might be. I, I do apologize. I'm like, just late on mixing up. But he's been a guy who's been calling out uh Canelo Alvarez and a lot of people think he'd be a tough match for Canelo because he's a he's got quicker feet, probably has quicker hands, and he's known as a he's known as a technician as far as his boxing. He's very slick, got a good jab, counters, really good footwork, really good positioning. So they think it'd be interesting for him to fate, for Canelo to face a guy who could actually engage him on a technical level as far as the skill set. Um, the problem with Mister Plan is it's not his backstory. He has an interesting story. His daughter died of an illness. He's won a world championship after she died. He's defended him multiple times. It's very interesting. It's not as far as an interest as far as the actual fight because of his skill set. That sells the fight as well. But the thing about Caleb Plant is he really has been beaten up on nobodies in his past two, three, four, five, six fights. While Canelo's fought, you know, champions in multiple divisions, guys who were no worse than the top five guy in a division. He fought Kovalev, even though Kovalev was probably shop-worn and done. The fact of the matter is, Kovalev was a multiple-time world champion who had just gotten his belt, who had just, who had gotten his belt back, and then being a very young, promising contender in the light heavyweight division. So canelo has been doing a certain kind of work, facing a certain kind of opponent. Yeah, he's had some soft touches in there, but more times than not, Canelo in the past two to three years has been facing nothing but world-class opponents: Golovkin, Jacobs, um, Kovalev. Um, writer, just guy after guy, Caleb Plant has been beaten up on underskilled, under f- physically gifted and under experienced fighters. And even in doing so, he's he hasn't ever generated enough interest or put enough stamps on the fight as far as a big KO or just something exciting to really whet the public's appetite where they would force that kind of fight. Obviously, Canelo wants to get titles in this weight class, super middleweight. But the fact of the matter is, Caleb Plant hasn't positioned himself as the kind of fighter who Canelo has to fight. I mean, his fights just aren't very exciting. And his latest fight against a shop worn guy who's very experienced but nowhere near a top 10 fighter, much less top 15 fighter. He had pretty much a paint-by-the-numbers fight. He worked him out, hustled him, eventually pulled away for a win. He didn't do anything that that really would set your attention that says, hey, I gotta see this guy like Canelo. And a lot of boxers, the same thing with MMA fighters, are forgetting that yeah, it's about winning, yeah, it's about skills, yeah, it's about the sweet science, but it's also about interest. When you're not the cash cow, when you're not the guy who generates a bunch of money, you have to generate interest by being exciting, by being dominant, by recreating instances where fans say, I wanna see this guy face this guy. I'm gonna put public pressure on this guy to face this guy. And until Caleb Plant does something like that, he's basically just going to be waiting around for Canelo. And to be honest, that seems like what he wants to do. He doesn't want to fight a top-end guy. He doesn't want to be the top-end guy. He wants to keep his title safe and sound until the opportunity to fight Canelo comes. And then I'm sure he's trying to win, but essentially he can cash out because Canelo will be a career-high payday. It just doesn't seem like he's trying to force Canelo's hand. He's just going to wait around and beat whoever he can. And hanging around hoping that he's chosen by by Canelo, and while I respect it as far as a businessman and him being, you know, a husband and a and a person who's trying to look at his career, I don't respect it because his job is to create that kind of pressure and create that kind of interest and generate 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 that so that the fight has to happen. And he and in that regard, he hasn't done his job. He's been grading his wins, but he's been beating up on nobodies. And I would like to see him at least be one world-class, world-ranked type fighter before he gets rewarded with a fight with the guy who everybody says is pound-for-pound death pound and the cash cow of boxing right now.
0: Well, I mean, you just really just went in there, sir, huh?
1: Uh, Yeah, I mean, like I said, I, it's a business, and it's a tough business. And I, 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 want, I want guys to make money, but just like they say it's a business and I got to make money, I don't want to take certain risks. You're asking people to invest large sums of money to... Because when he gets these ratings, that's fans who tune in to get his ratings. There's guys who, even if it's regular TV, you pay for regular TV. It's not like pay-per-view, but you still pay for it. So people are spending their hard-earned money that, you know, so they can have experience with their kids, so they have a memory. And the least you can do is present them with a fight or performance that gets their interest. It's easy to say, yeah, you're not in the ring, and you're not taking these risks, and it's a risk of life. We know it's a risk of your life. But guess what? That's the job you chose to take on. You could have been a contractor. You could have been a manager. You could have been a janitor. You could have been a McDonald's employee. You could have worked at the fast food drive-through. You could work in an admin. You wanted to be a fighter. That's the way you chose to get out, provide for your family, and to get out of your situation. I respect the risk that comes with that. But with the risk comes a responsibility. You want five million dollars. I don't want to give you five million dollars to see you fight a guy who's not in your class. I don't want to see you. Making title defenses against guys who can't hurt you. We want to see exciting fights. We want to see your clear dominance and we want to see you earn what you have. And that's why sometimes the more traditional stick and ball sports get more credit than combat sports. You can't skip steps to a WNBA champ an NBA championship or a WNBA championship. You have to be every person ranked in front of you, every person ahead of you to get to the title. There's no, the Lakers can't say, we don't want to play the Clippers. We don't want to play the Portland. We don't want to play Dallas. We want to play Denver. We want to play the Hornets. And then we want to go to the title. You don't get that. You can't pick and choose. It doesn't matter who sells the most or who's the most popular. Otherwise, the Cowboys would be in the Super Bowl every year. You have to beat who's in front of you. You have to beat who's proven themselves to be better than you throughout the regular season. You have to earn it. And even if you're the best record in regular season, you still have to earn it. There's no skipping any steps. And in combat sports, it's, well, they're not a draw. Nobody wants to see them. Nobody cares. That that performance wasn't impressive enough. There's no way around it. You have to fight the best to get to your opportunity to win the title in any other sport. In boxing, you don't have to do that. In MMA, you don't have to do that. It's whoever's hot, whoever had the right win, whoever won the most impressively. It's not about working your way to that position. And that's why those... Combat sports don't always get as much respect as the stick and ball swords because there is an actual legitimate path you have to go through to be the best. NCAA tournament, any sport, you don't get to skip steps. You have to beat everybody. You have to be somewhere in the top ten people. You have to beat three or four of them to get to where you're going. You have to. If you don't do it, you won't. Get, you won't be NCAA champion. Same thing with NBA. Same thing with football. Same thing with soccer. Only in mixed martial arts and boxing can you, oh, you know, fight. Guys who are not even ranked in the top 30 and get a world title and get the challenge the best guy in the world when you haven't beat a guy who's ranked past the top 25. What other sport does that happen in? That's why the authenticity of combat sports is constantly questioned, even though it's actually the more draining and more difficult sport. It's the only sport where you can skip steps. Serena Williams couldn't skip steps. Well, I don't want to face the number four contender. I want to go straight to number one. Okay, cool. You're the big name. Go. You're the defending champion. Go. It doesn't work that way. So this is just an example of that. He's a very good fighter, very skilled, great story, but he hasn't done anything to say that he deserves to be in with the pound-for-pound best guy who's moving up in weight to fight. He hasn't beaten anybody who says that he's ready for that challenge. He just keeps telling us he's ready for it. And maybe he is, but I think he should at least have to earn that. And beating up on guys who aren't in your class doesn't do it for me.
0: Well, I want to know, though, what are you working on, Swan? Why don't you let people know from there? What content are you working on, my man?
1: Um, I sent an article to Michael already about a, uh, about camps, you know, we always had these rants about what camps prepare as far as sparring, as far as watching film, as far as how they assess their, their, uh, their uh, fighters, stuff like that. So I basically wrote an article that breaks down four key aspects of a camp in a corner that, and what, and what value they should, they should bring. And then I give examples of what happens when that, when your camp or your corner doesn't address that thing correctly and how it affects your development, how it affects your performance in fights, how it affects their ability to even come up with a game plan as to how to train you because they didn't gauge you right, right off the bat. And then after that gets done, um, there's a guy who's doing an MMA, like a book or something, and he wants me to do a kind of a review, flashback of the Jessica Andrade, Rose Namajunas rematch, kind of how they grew, what were their flaws, what were their strengths, and then finally, I'm doing the Winter Soldier and Falcon is going to be premiering in March. So I'm going to do an article breaking down some of the fight styles, strategies, and, and techniques of various characters who are going to appear in that series. Um, GSP is going to appear in it as Batroc. So I'm going to have a thing breaking down his style, the Winter Soldier, of course, uh, Agent, Agent 23, I think that's where they go. Uh, so just a couple, couple characters from the show, and I'm going to kind of break down how they fight how they approach fighting, and how they perform when they face off against each other's or other characters in the Marvel Universe.
0: Well, sir, I thank you for that, man. I am um, sticking to the pro wrestling world. There's so much going on right now, and I'm 110% swamped in that, but also hitting up as much MMA as I possibly can as well to make sure I'm covering that too. Uh, there's just so much going on in combat sports, which is great because it yeah. gives us something to do.
1: I'm gonna. I told myself I'm going to... As far as, like, with the breakdowns, I'm going to try and get more, you know, it's very hard to find some of these break, these gifts for these fight scenes. It's Some some of these shows I want to do, I, I just can't find them. So I have to switch up things, but I, I told myself I want to at least get a little bit more regular in writing articles, just have a little bit, do my fair share as, as far as providing content and helping to, uh, to kind of advertise and keep the MMA ratings out on Twitter and out in social media and out among the other sites that are constantly generated contact, try to keep us in that circle so that we can stay up t- towards the front and hopefully expand on our uh, fan base and expand on uh, our ratings, our, I don't want to say any ratings, but our ratings. <laughs>
0: mm-hmm. Yeah, we definitely jumped up with about 40 new uh, subscribers in the last week, so
1: yeah, I, keep doing I, what we're doing. Yeah, I, I came back, I was, uh I was just started, I've been trying to really contact people on, you know, just on Twitter and outside and just reminding them to share and like, because sometimes people listen to the show and they just... I got to subscribe. They're like, I like you. One guy told me, I've been listening to y'all for like the past two months, and me and three of my friends, and we never, we never thought about subscribing. We just listened to it when it came out. So yeah, I was like, well, subscribe. So they uh, subscribed, and you know, just trying to, trying to engage the fans a little bit more, see if we can get a little bit more traction, and see what happens.
0: Good stuff, there, sir. Well, that's all I got for tonight, man. We'll be back, um, and we'll be back next week.
1: All right, sir. Well, thank you again for letting me do the show, and uh, you have a great evening. You too, sir. Thank you.